You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be looking at The Nom number 71, which is the second part of a three-part story called Operation Chicken Lips, and that storyline takes place in March and April of 1972. Last episode I talked about March 1972 in the historical context section, and so it's only fitting that I talk about April this time around. But I'll also be bringing back a feature I had a while ago, which is the additional coverage of a piece of popular culture that deals with the Vietnam War. This time it will be the book Home Before Morning by Linda Vandevander. Our song this month is Horse With No Name, which was number one in the country on the day this issue takes place and is sung by the group America. The song was no- one of a number of hits for the group and generated some controversy because the title was misinterpreted by some to be a reference to, the- to heroin use. Horse is a slang term for heroin. However, the origins of the song are actually found in the artwork of Salvador Dali and M.C. Escher. Our comic came out on June 30th, 1992, and it has a cover by Mike Harris and Mark McKenna that shows a soldier holding on to a rope as he rappels down to action below. Just like the last cover, it's eye-catching and it gives a pretty good perspective, almost having a 3D effect. Plus, it's composed very nicely. If you follow the rope, you get him and then look past him to the action, which is pretty heavy. This is part two of Operation Chicken Lips, and the title of the issue is Return to Brass Hat. Don Lomax is the writer, Wayne Van Zandt is the artist, Phil Felix does letters, John Kelly's colors, Tim Tui is the assistant editor, Don Daly is the editor, and Tom DeFalco is the editor-in-chief. We open in Da Nang at the 95th EVAC Hospital on April 1st, 1972, the day after the last issue took place. Ed Marks' chopper is landed and he follows the wounded into the hospital, asking a doctor if there is anything he can do. The doctor corroborates Ed's story about a major offensive going on, and then Ed mentions that there is a firebase with just a few men holding off a massive attack. The doctor asks Ed if he is a, if he's CIA, and Ed says no, he's just a journalist, but he does want to help. The doctor says to check out MCAV, but can't offer any more help than that. Ed goes to MCAV headquarters, but then gets stonewalled and then goes to the I-Corps tactical headquarters to see if he can get someone to talk to him. And he's told that since the men at the firebase didn't want to return, there's nothing else they can do, at least according to the colonel there. As he leaves, one of the men he had been talking to, Sergeant Hassel, comes up to him and tells him to talk to a Master Sergeant Coons at the airport and have him get him to Cam Low. The Arvin 54th may be able to help the firebase. 
Ed talks to Sergeant Coons, who is not only short, but also running guns, and Coons makes arrangements to put Ed on a C-130 head, headed back for Comlo. Before he heads back out, Ed goes to see some of the guys in the hospital, and then heads to his plane, where he meets three guys with the nicknames of Tex-Mex, Hucklebuck, and Rocket Man. They exchange some words in Ed's size and th- thinks about how things have changed since 1967 and how there seems to be way more corruption in the ranks now than there was back then. It's then that one of the guys that Ed saw in the hospital joins him to head back to the firebase, and based on the fact that the soldier, an e- a medic that Ed calls Doc, is wearing the wrong fatigues, Ed realizes that he's probably AWOL from the hospital. While on the C-130, they talk about the situation and they get some background about how things are. Most importantly, it's so hairy out there that not much of the Arvin 54th is actually headed in the direction to the firebase, which makes Ed and Doc's job harder than either of them thought it was going to be. They make a hot landing at Cam Low and then they get on helicopters to the firebase while tanks close in below. Although before leaving Kamlo, the choppers provide some much-needed help through fire and then fly out. They land around dusk and the choppers are given to the Vietnamese flight crews that they were intended for, and then Ed goes to sleep. He's woken close to sunrise by Tex-Mex, who tells him that Doc kidnapped a Vietnamese pilot and hijacked a Chinook helicopter in an effort to go back to Brass Hut and rescue the men there. Tex-Mex says that they're going up, and their orders are to put him on deck one way or the other, which might mean shooting him down. Middle chapters in three-part storylines can always be a little tough, because the writer has a couple of obligations that he or she has to meet. First, when you have a comic of this age, where the storytelling is still compressed despite its being a multi-part storyline, you still need to more or less tell a complete story throughout the comic. Second, you have to make sure enough progress has been made since the end of part one to justify the existence of part two. Third, you have to set up the third part of the storyline. Lomax does all three of those very well here. Ed Marks was always a good guy, and he's even as far back as the first few issues of the series, he's always shown compassion for his fellow man in ways that some others in the NOM don't. Here, he cares about the guys who were wounded at Brass Hut, and he also puts forth a concerted effort to help out the ones who stayed behind. Keep in mind that these are men that Marx is covering as a journalist and not his actually assigned company, so he's under no obligation to help them out. In fact, I think there would probably be some who would say that he's actually under an obligation to stay out of the story, But as a counter to that argument, I will note that AP photographer Nick Utt famously took a picture on June 8th of 1972 of a naked girl during a napalm attack, and afterwards he was the person who took her to the hospital. And I'm not trying to inject my own personal beliefs here or anything, but there has to be a point where, as a journalist, you do put down the camera or the pen and show some concern for the people you're with or help them in some way because it's simply the human thing to do, which is what I think Ed Marks is doing here by going to the colonel in Da Nang. He knows that the men back at Brass Hut are in danger of dying, so he does whatever he can to get someone's attention. Of course... Nobody listens, because if they did, and this were a straight-up rescue mission, this would have been a two-parter and not a three-parter. So we get the sort of rogue rescue mission here that goes completely crazy when Doc steals the Chinook 
to get to the firebase instead of sticking with Ed and the three other guys while they figure out how to pull off the rescue a little more by the book. Although, not exactly. Now, I'll say that the nicknames of the guys that Ed teams up with, Tex-Mex, Hucklebuck, and Rocketman, sound like they were considered for G.I. Joe figures at one point or another. But from what I gather, Lomax is a vet himself, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt here. Plus, as characters, they kind of are a means to an end. They are there to make sure that Ed Marks follows the story, and then they're going to be there to help resolve the tension that pops up at the end here. So they serve their purpose. Wayne Van Zant contributes to this very well, and he's actually got a harder job this issue because the story hinges more on conversation than it does on action, and the combination of Van Zant's art and Kaliza's colors do a very good job at making the story engaging. Van Sant uses facial expressions and close-ups on the various characters to convey emotions, and makes them look like individuals. For example, in the conversation with the colonel and sergeant where he's trying to get help for the firebase, the two men look older, experienced, and even worn. Ed himself looks older than we originally saw him as drawn by Michael Golden. He has an appropriate era mustache, but at the same time still has traces of the baby-faced greenie that we met a few years ago. And when we do get action, Van Sant doesn't go overboard, and his usual attempts for a realistic depiction of the explosions with no origin point that we've come to see from artillery shelling throughout the series. Plus, it's raining during that entire scene, and that is conveyed on every panel. Once again, this is a solid issue, and well, I don't want to say that this is a return to form, because that would take away from the work that Chuck Dixon did during his run. I will say that Don Lomax, in two issues, just two issues on the book, has shown that he's as committed to this series as anyone who has written it thus far. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'm going to look at historical context, letters, and ads. Your white privilege, what is that? <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? The BET Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say I that? Think there's a difference between having a point of view and being a partisan. Are we trying to kill them or scare them? Killing is scary. Names, no number, just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the big mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. <laughs> Questions. We don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too, but I really wish you wouldn't as they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. (laughs) (laughs) Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of 
questions, we don't have answers. You didn't even talk about Japan in this one. I think you did well. <laughs> the show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com, on iTunes, and right into the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com. I just hope it's not boring to listen to. Like, oh my god, they're not going anywhere. Truly, they don't have answers. <laughs> well, I can also mention more Star Trek episodes. Okay, so let's look at April of 1972. Like I said last episode, the big thing going on in the war is the Easter Offensive, and I covered that pretty much in depth then. So if you need a primer as to why the firebase in the area around it are under so much heavy attack, go back and listen to that before you listen here. The specific events regarding the Easter Offensive from the United States side were troop authorizations, deployments, and bombings by both American and Arvin forces in response to the North Vietnamese attacks. They include, on April 2, 1972, in response to the Eastertide Offensive, President Nixon authorizes the, 30, the 7th U.S. Fleet to target NVA troops massed around the DMZ with airstrikes and naval gunfire. On April 4th, in a further response to Eastertide, Nixon authorizes a massive bombing campaign targeting all NVA troops invading South Vietnam along with B-52 airstrikes against North Vietnam. Quote, he says, privately, the bastards have never been bombed like they're going to be bombed this time. On April 10th, heavy B-52 bombardments ranging 145 into North Vietnam begin. On April 12th, the NVA Eastertide attack on Con Tum begins in central South Vietnam. If the attack succeeds, South Vietnam will effectively be cut in two. On April 13th, the United States Senate voted 68 to 16 to approve the War Powers Act, which would limit the power of the president to commit American forces to hostilities without congressional approval. The legislation then moved on to the House. The first destruction of an enemy tank by Cobra attack helicopter was made by CW2 Barry McIntyre in the course of the Battle of Anloke. The maneuverable and destructive Cobras were able to stop entire columns of North Vietnamese tanks and turn the course of the Easter Offensive. Lieutenant Cormel Isil or Ikeel Hamilton, a USAF EB-66 navigator who had been shot down on April 2nd, was rescued. He had spent 11 and a half days behind enemy lines. During rescue operation, five aircraft were shot down, 11 servicemen were killed, and two men were captured. The rescue operation was the largest, longest, and most complex search and rescue operation during the entire Vietnam War. On April 15, 1972, Hanoi and Haiphong Harbor are bombed by the U.S. From April 15th to the 20th, protests against the bombings erupted throughout the country. On April 19th, the NVA Eastertide attack on An Lok began. And April 25th, Nixon and Henry Kissinger secretly discussed strategy in attacking North Vietnam after Kissinger estimated that taking out dykes would, quote, drown about 200,000 people. Nixon responded, I'd rather use a nuclear bomb. Have you got that? When Kissinger responded, that I think would be would just be too much. Nixon said, I just want you to think big, Henry, for Christ's sake. The tape of the conversation was released years later. The Paris peace talks resumed on April 27th of 1972, and by the end of April of 1972, United States troop levels in Vietnam dropped to 69,000. Uh, this information was courtesy of both the History Place and Wikipedia. No letters this month, so let's take a look at ads. 
We'll probably have some more of the same ones we've had. Uh, this is around the time that you know they tend to run for multiple months. We on the inside cover we have a uh, we have a ad for the Jean Claude Van Damme Dolph Lundgren movie Universal Soldier, which is something I actually saw in the theater. Probably should see again. It does have a connection to the NOM in that they were both NOM vets and they were put into this program, which is almost like a RoboCop type of program. It's, you know, it it was what it was. Um, There is an advertisement for the Marvel Universe Series 3 trading cards from Skybox. I remember having a number of these. I remember the Marvel Series 2 lineup was the one that I had... um, that was that was a big deal for me because that was the one I had the most of. Super Nintendo Extra Innings has an ad. This is from Sony ImageSoft, it, and there's a lot of copy on this ad. This is still when video a number of video games still had like a fa- their fair share of copy. Bottom of the tenth, two outs, bases loaded, and the league's best hitters at the plate. Will he take your screwball downtown, or will you blow him away with your awesome fastball? Find out when you play Extra Innings, the amazing new baseball game for Super NES. Select your starting lineup based on who's hot and who's not. With extra innings, you call the shots and control the action. The spin on the curveball, your batting slugger's power, even when your players dive, there's a misused apostrophe in here for a shot up the middle. When you play extra innings, you can put on a hit and run, take a long lead off first, or nail a base runner at the plate on a sacrifice fly. Play like the pros as you fight for a 12-team league pennant. And remember, statistics are updated and available on every player. You even select the stadium, air dome, midsize, or high wall. Every choice changes the game. There's never been a baseball game like Extra Innings. Eight different playing options, including two-player mode and all-star team competition, make this the hit of the season. Extra Innings. It's a home run. If I'm being honest here, like I've never heard of this game. <laughs> but then again, I didn't play a lot of Super Nintendo games because I didn't have a Super Nintendo. But I see a lot of the same features that would pop up in later sports games. I just always find it funny how much copy is on these ads. The Robotech and Heroes Unlimited role-playing games um, from Palladium Books are advertised, and there's just um, which we've seen advertisements for this before. I do love the cover of that Robotech role-playing game. It's almost like I want to see if I can track down a copy of that just to own it and just have it because it's cool Robotech stuff. Um, Marvel Classic Tees, we've got a few, uh, t-shirts that are available. Some of the all-around ones, like Punisher throwing grenades. There's a Hulk one of, on the front, the Hulk is busting through the shirt, and on the back, you see a full-body shot of the Hulk. There's a Death's Head t-shirt as well. Remember, this is the 90s. This is Marvel. We have a hodgepodge ad. Um, we have... Let's see. Uh, the Greatest Eastern Convention's July schedule. There's, hey, kids, Marvel's for sale. And then there's all these sort of prices where you can get a grab bag of 10 for 5, 25 for 10, 100 for 40, 500 for 175, and 1,000 for $300 um, from a place in Jersey. Um, let's see. There, The HodgePods ads have, you can buy Gumby and Pokey characters for both just $1.99 and a dollar for shipping and handling from Big Time Productions in New Hyde Park, New York. Um, you can get a signed X-Men number one from Scott Williams if you order it from New Age Comics in Chico, California. There's a karate power video. 
Um, Rita Smolinski is still running the marketplace. You can get, so you can still go to high school in your spare time and computer sports games. And there's the secret Dyna method getting you Hercules muscles, not Charles Atlas. Um, there is an advertisement for the X-Men arcade game. I remember this one uh, from Konami. I don't know if they did. They ever release this for a home system? This was a cool game. It had uh, there were two versions, and they show this. They show the what looks like the three-player version, and then like the five or is that a six-player version? And it is just it, this was like a really just I loved playing this game in the arcade with friends and or watching people play this game in the arcade in friends. It had some some of the best like animation I remember at the time, and it's I mean it's very much of its time, but it's uh it was just again a lot of a lot of fun. Bullpen bulletins this month. Stan is on his soapbox again, um, and he's talking about a how he's going back and forth to. Uh, Los Angeles and New York and talking about how awful the news had been. Um, and then he was talking about how, you know, basically the Marvel bullpen is like the UN. And, and then he says, um, there's a lot of diversity and why can't we all get along? And I'm not exactly sure what he's getting at. I think it's just kind of like a, a universal friendliness gesture. Anyway, in um, in the main part of the bullpen, uh, they're celebrating Spider-Man's 30th anniversary, and they, they grab the line from the American Graffiti advertisements by asking you, where were you in June of 62? And uh, they go through all of the different people um, who are at Marvel and a number of people who have worked on Spider-Man before and asked them what they were doing back in 1962 when Stanley and Steve Ditko created Spider-Man. Uh, John Romita says he was doing romance books at DC. Ross Andrews says he can't remember. Um, Eric Larson says that he wasn't even born yet. John Romita Jr. says that he was five years old, but he was beginning to doodle because he saw his father drawing and he played a lot of six stickball and heard his first Beatles song and lost his dog. Sal Buscema was living in Queens and um, was working at an advertising art studio. Mark Bagley was five years old and was an army brat. Ron Friends was doing whatever two-year-olds do. Peter David was in kindergarten, and his parents wouldn't let him buy Marvel Comics because they said the characters were too ugly. Keith Pollard was 12, was a comic book fan, and probably in middle school, but he was heavily into Superman and Batman. David Michelinie was 14. It was the summer he gave up comic books. He was going to be a freshman in high school and felt that he was too old to read comics. He gave away his comic collection of 500 comics, which would, which he says today would probably pay the national debt. Uh, you, you hear about stories like that. Alex Saviak says he was nine years old. He was an avid comic book reader, but he didn't hear about Spider-Man until the end of that summer. And he was a Superman and Batman fan. J.M. DeMatteis was eight. He was living in an apartment in Brooklyn, and after either reading comics or running around on the street with his friends, and he was a diehard DC person. Marv Wolfman was at the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. He was trying to become a cartoonist. He was a regular reader of amazing adult fantasy and read all the issues. He says, when 15 came out, I was a shock. It was a shock. 
I was very disappointed because I liked the O. Henry Twilight Zone type of stories that Stan and Steve were doing. I didn't want to see yet another superhero, but I read it, and I really liked it. Len Wein was a big comics fan at the time. He was in junior high. He picked up any issue of Amazing Adult Fantasy. He says he picked up the first Spider-Man. He had the complete set of Silver Age Marvels. He almost did not buy FF number one. He says, I used to stand in the store and stare at that logo. I thought it was a funny animal comic. Jim Mooney, who's an inker, says that he uh, had a studio in Hollywood, California. It was working on DC doing Supergirl. Danny Fingeroff was a camper at Camp Wanadu, Wina- and he had the biggest comic book collection there. Tom DeFalco was 12 years old and already a Die in the Wood Marvel fan, and he bought it off Amazing Fantasy 15 off the stands. And Mike Esposito remembers that he was definitely aware of Spider-Man when the character came out, because... Um, Back in 62, his daughter was reading an issue of Spider-Man, and I asked her what it was. I'd never heard of it. I glanced at it, and I thought it was so different from anything we were doing over at DC. My daughter said she liked Spider-Man because he had problems with his girlfriend in school, and she could identify with it. And I thought, my God, Stan Lee's got a winner. And they say, now to end this reminiscence session on a crassly commercial note, you may want to know this month marks the debut of a 30th anniversary Spidey t-shirt. Featuring great artwork from the past three decades. Also available this month is a new Spider-Man trading card set featuring Spidey's greatest moments. And uh, they say, our spider collection sense is tingling like fire of alarm chili. And uh, the last Coolometer. Oh, starting at cool. Coolots. Anna Maria Cool. Cool Hand Luke. Cool Mob D. Kuala Lumpur. Kool-Aid. Joe Cool. Cool in the Gang. LL Cool J. Highs Cool. Cool Whip, Calvin Coolidge, Cooley High, Cool and Gath, Wine Coolers, Cool World, Cool McCool, and Coolometers. <laughs> Thor will be celebrating its his 450th issue, which uh, is made up to look like the original Journey into Mystery cover. The same ads that we saw in the previous issue for Cops, The Job, and The Punisher War Zone, and uh, in later in April of 2018. An episode, I believe it's 88 and 89 of Pop Culture Affidavit. I will be taking a look at both Cops the Job and the DC series Underworld. So you can go over there and check those out. There's a Marvel subscription ad showing the, the Hulk in, uh, in swimming trunks lounging by the pool. And we see an NBA on Game Boy ad in the inside back cover. And the back cover is entertainment this month we have cable which is highly recommended this is a two-part miniseries that is hot and i can't miss wildcats is um going to be going to be premiering wildcats number one features the first appearance of a powerful new team of mutant heroes from image comics hot Brigade, all-new radical group of mutant superheroes by Liefeld from Image Comics. Brigade number one includes two trading cards, and that's highly recommended. Um, A lot of the same stuff, there is a shot of an X-Men poster that was inside, I believe, X-Men number one, and then became an X-Men poster. And I had this on my wall in my bedroom. It was the one where they're all by the pool and like Psylocke is lounging and in the front and like, you know, everybody's got, you know, everybody's got the boobs going and everything. So, um, yeah, I was a teenage boy and bought things that were, you know, 
superhero women in bikinis and things. So there you go. And that'll do it for this issue, though. But don't go away. I'll be right back with a look at Linda Vandervanter's book, Home Before Morning, The Story of an Army Nurse in Vietnam. Stick around. Attention. Attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity! Jocularity! Through the mirror of my mind, time after time, I see reflections of you and me, reflections of the way life used to be. So in seeking out other literature and popular culture about the Vietnam War, I've had to kind of pick and choose because there's so much of it that I can't possibly cover it all unless I want this to be a much bigger show. I've covered quite a bit of combat or wartime-oriented movies, but what has really started to interest me has been the stories of soldiers after they returned from the war. I touched on that a little bit when I talked about Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried and also when I covered the film and book In Country in issue 50. And I really saw it play out nicely when Luke Giaconetti and I talked about First Blood a number of episodes ago. Home Before Morning covers topics similar to both In Country and First Blood in that it talks about a person's time in Vietnam as well as the long road back from the war and post-traumatic stress disorder. However, unlike both of those works, this one is about a woman, and I thought it would be an excellent idea to cover it because it is a different perspective than the one we have gotten so far. Linda Vandevander, who passed away back in 2002, wrote Home Before Morning as a memoir not just of her time as a nurse in the Vietnam War, but of her life since she returned from the war. It was originally published in 1983, and then after spending a number of years out of print, was republished in 2001, with a new afterword by the author updating the reader on what happened to her since the book's original publication. It's still in print, and it's available on Amazon.com, although only in paperback. So those of you who are ebook junkies or like your audiobooks won't have much luck. I happen to find my copy that uh, my local library had, so... And I want to personally give a shout out to the Jefferson Madison Regional Library in Charlottesville, because with the exception of All Quiet of the Western Front, of which I have a personal copy, pretty much all of the books I've looked at for this podcast came from one of their branches or their ebook lending services. And I cannot say enough that you should support and use your local library as much as possible. All right, off the library soapbox into the book. 
The book starts just prior to Van Devanter's tour in Vietnam, which took place from 1969 to 1970, mostly at the 71st EVAC Hospital in Ply Ku, which was near the Cambodian border and which was a rather primitive facility compared to what you may have been used to seeing on television shows such as M.A.S.H. But before we get to Vietnam, we have a portrait of Van Devanter growing up in Arlington, Virginia and coming from a pretty well-off middle-class family. She goes to nursing school in late 1968 and goes off with her friend Barbara, and uh, I should note that she changed Barbara's name and the names of several other people in the book, although that is pretty par for the course when it comes to a lot of memoirs. So they go on a cross-country road trip that's full of car issues and calamities before they report for basic training. That trip is actually quite comical as the car keeps breaking down. And at one point, they have spent so much of their money on car repair that they actually wind up taking shift work at a hospital in Louisiana so that they can continue on their trip. At first, I found it odd that she started the book this way, but as I read, I understood that it was in direct contrast to her experience in Vietnam, as well as who she was when she returned from the war in 1970. As I mentioned, she's assigned to the 71st EVAC Hospital in Plaikou, while Barbara is assigned to Kamran Bay, which is one of the larger convalescent facilities in Vietnam, and allowed a number of troops to be treated in-country instead of being stabilized and shipped to other facilities in, say, Tokyo, although that definitely did happen for much things that were much worse. The two don't see each other very much, except for one meeting that Van Devanter details, and it's during that meeting that she observes that Barbara has changed quite a bit due to her experiences and is more distant and depressed. Van Devanter details her tour chronologically and episodically, not shying away from graphic depictions of soldiers' injuries and deaths, as well as the long hours of working on the body on body after body. One image that she eventually hones in on is the prom photo of a couple named Jean and Kelly from 1968, which she found on one of the guys that she treated. It's something that repeatedly comes back to her in nightmares, mainly because it was one of the details of the people she remembered from the war, showing that she couldn't really distance herself from the people she was supposedly helping. Another focus of her tour are the stories of the romantic affair she had with two doctors, the first being a married one named Carl, and the second being a doctor named Jack, who is single and with whom she lives for a time after the war. The exact details of all the stories she tells are too numerous to mention in this short summary, but there are stories about her being harassed by male soldiers and officers. Her cousin, Steve, being in country at the same time, but then dying on his way back from Vietnam because he contracted malaria and blackwater fever. A CO named Bubba, who gets the entire facility staff involved in a regular exercise program and an Olympics-like competition. The crusade of Major Mary Swenson to get a place, the place in ship shape, and letters and tapes that she sends home to her parents that show her growing depression that is resulting from her experience at the war. Van Deventer goes home in 1970 and barely gets to the airport in San Francisco when she is spit on and can't get a ride. Eventually, she gets home and starts working at Walter Reed Hospital, but finds the work unfulfilling because it is mind-numbingly bureaucratic. She also has a hard time adjusting to being at home with her parents, and there's a funny story about her cursing when asking her sister to pass the potatoes. She eventually moves out of her parents' house first to Alexandria, but then to Los Angeles to live with Jack. That relationship was probably doomed from the start, but it takes a while for it to completely fall apart. 
Van Deventer finds work in various capacities as a nurse, including working as, with a very well-regarded cardiologist, but she spends her spare time drinking, and after she and Jack split, she finds comfort in a long string of one-night stands. The Nightmares, which prominently feature that 1968 prom photo, continue, and she even plans out her own suicide by using Darvon, which she learned would be effective based on the actions of a soldier she had encountered. Vandeventer then begins working at a dialysis center and meets Bill, who would become her first husband. She goes into therapy while Bill has a long career in radio, and while their marriage does fall apart, he helps her by making her part of a documentary called Coming Home Again, and that helps her get involved with Vietnam Veterans of America. By the way, I tried to track down this documentary, but my Google foo is not working, so if anyone listening to this does know where I can locate that documentary, Coming Home Again, please feel free to contact me. I'd love to take a look at it. Uh, Vandevander divorces Bill in the early 80s. She eventually marries a man named Tom and has a daughter named Molly, who has a few birth defects, which have resulted from Vandevander's exposure to Agent Orange during the war. She also depicts a trip to Vietnam in 1981, and at at both the end of the book and in her afterword from 2001, talks about how that, along with her work as a major part of veterans' organizations, helped her finally heal from her experiences. It is a memoir that at a glance is pretty dense and definitely has its more dense parts. Now, while I did read it in a weekend, I can understand it if it takes anyone else a while, but I will say that I couldn't put it down because Vandevanter was such a great t- storyteller and she puts forth a description of her experience that is as visceral as anything else I've read about the war. And her perspective as a nurse is so much different and yet the same as the soldiers. No, she doesn't have specific physical wounds, but the psychological toll that her experience takes from saving and often losing soldiers who were not much older than she was is devastating. Furthermore, she does not pull her punches in terms of her language or her opinion, either. I mean, I didn't go into the book expecting her to be Mary Worth or anything, but she didn't back down from just how, well, dirty everything was over there. Of course, she didn't have comics code working against her like our writers on the NOM do. But really, Van Devanter does not shy away from making herself unsympathetic at times and offers no excuses for the fact that she is flawed. Carl is the doctor that she has a long affair with and who decides to return home to his wife and family, and in so many words tells her that whatever is there between the two of them is not going to continue back home. The romance with Jack is doomed because after he passes his boards, he decides to move to the Northwest and pursue his career, and you see this long spiral downward for her. And the way she tells the story, I found myself amazed by a couple of things that you could see it as it happened in a sense, and that she does not shy away from revealing how flawed she was and still is. There's definitely a redemption arc through the story of her trials and overcoming the alcoholism that came with her PTSD. But this is meant to be more of a straightforward story rather than some uplifting tale of inspiration. And yet, its honesty is its inspiration, really. Had Van Devanter wrapped this up in flowers and rainbows and sweet goodness with a happy ending, it wouldn't have rang true. And even if that were true, it would have felt as if something were missing, like we weren't getting the whole story because she just wanted to tell the audience how to feel. 
The effect of her honesty is felt through the afterward, where she discusses the impact that the book had on her life and on people who had read it, especially other vets. She also answers a few questions about what happened to the people at Plyku, many of whom she reunited with after the war. She reveals that she never reconnected with Barbara, her friend from the beginning of the book, whose real name she reveals is Cheryl. And to my knowledge, they never did reconnect before uh, Van Devanter died in 2002. If it's not been made clear, I do highly recommend checking the book out through your local library if they have it, or getting it through Amazon. It's intriguing, it's gripping, and it offers a perspective that we're not always used to seeing when we talk about the experiences of the Vietnam War. Well, with one possible exception, which is what I'm going to be doing instead of historical context for the next four episodes. In 1987, Home Before Morning wound up serving as the inspiration and some of the source material for the ABC television series China Beach, a series about nurses that starred, among other people, Dana Delaney. There were four seasons of the show, and for the next four episodes of In Country, I'll be taking a look at one season at a time, focusing on the characters as well as on my favorite episodes. Until then, you can check out some stuff on the show notes, including a link to Linda Vandervanter's obituary and where to find her book. And please feel free to leave a review or feedback. After this episode, we are officially in the final 20 episodes of the series, so if you've been here since the beginning, I want to thank you and hope you'll stick around because I'm planning on going out on a high note. I'm also available on Twitter now, and you can find me at PopCultureAffidavit or at PopAff, P-O-P-A-F-F, so go ahead and follow me over there. And as always, I'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening, and take care. Ocean is a desert with its life underground and the perfect You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. 